Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. As you're turning in your copy of Scripture to Isaiah chapter 6, which is our text for this morning, let me ask you a question. How are you doing today? I hope you're doing well. If you were to ask me, I'm doing pretty well. I had a wonderful breakfast this morning, thankful for the Baptist men and the breakfast that they wonderfully made this morning. They had an opportunity to eat some eggs and bacon and some other things that probably aren't that good for you, but nevertheless, they taste really good and enjoyed that opportunity to fellowship with fellow believers this morning at breakfast. But, you know, we use that phrase, how you doing, as a way to say hello. Not all the time do we intend to have a conversation with people about exactly how they are doing. And if we were to ask a little deeper question or a little deeper, get a, try to get a little deeper answer, some of us may have a little different answer if we're really honest with you about how things are going in our lives. Uh, earlier this week, I was thinking about my mom. She passed away in January of 2018 and she was the person I'd go to when I needed someone to pray for and needed some encouragement. And, um, you know, I miss my mom not being here. Many of you understand what that's like, having a mom or a dad or a spouse or a child who has gone on to be with the Lord. And, you know, that grief in this moment may not be as acute as it once was, but it's still there. It's still hovering. Some of you may be carrying a little bit of that with you today. Some of you today may be wondering and worrying about what is going to happen in the world around us. We have so much political turmoil and division and certainly I uh, have a, a sense of uncertainty about what's going to happen with the economy and wondering what's that going to do to the money that I've saved and is that going to affect my future? Uh, and I just want to tell you those concerns, those frustrations, those fears, those griefs that you and I may have and may even carry with us into a worship service, they're not unique to us. Believers of centuries gone back have faced things just like that. In fact, in our text, Isaiah 6, it tells us that in the year King Uzziah died. That's when Isaiah had this vision. Uzziah reigned in Judah for more than 50 years. His reign was a time of political and material prosperity. Uh, he was a co-regent for a number of his, his years as king. He's known as a leper king because he was struck with leprosy. But nevertheless, the people of Judah uh, enjoyed significant material prosperity while he was king. And his death represented a time in the lives of the people of Israel, a concern, a wonder, what's going to happen? Who's going to reign next? Are we going to, is our next king going to follow the Lord like our previous king did? What's going on in our circumstances? And I think part of what took place in Isaiah's vision of the Lord here in this passage of Scripture is God met him at a point where there was some uncertainty in his own life, and God met him to show him what he needed to see and experience about God. And he invited Isaiah to experience God in his holy splendor. And that's the text. Read with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple... Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In preparation for this sermon, I read a fascinating book by G.K. Beale entitled, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And uh, G.K. Beale references this particular passage as an instrumental passage in that understanding of what idolatry looks like through the Old and the New Testament. His primary theme in that book is the theme for today's sermon. It's this, what you revere, you resemble either for ruin or for restoration. In other words, what it is that we decide we're going to worship, that we're going to focus our attention on, that we're going to adore, that we're going to praise, that we're going to bring majesty to, that's what we're going to become like. So we're either going to worship God and become more like Him, or we're going to worship other things and become more like other things. And either we will have restoration by worshiping God, or we will have ruin by worshiping those other things that lead only to destruction and separation from a holy God. With that particular theme in mind, we're going to look at four specific worship principles that flow from this text that reflect whether or not we're worshiping God in that appropriate way. What is the quality of our worship? And what does Isaiah 6 tell us about how we can discern the quality of our worship? So let me give you worship principle number one that helps us identify that in our own lives. God is more holy than we imagine. The text tells us that the angels sang, the seraphs sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. No other designation in Scripture is given the way that this is given here in Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4. The Bible does not declare in other places God is love, 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 or righteous, 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 although that would be absolutely true. But in this instance... And in the instance in Revelation chapter 4, the implication is, the declaration is, that God is the thrice holy God. When we say He's holy, uh, we're, we're talking about the idea of His transcendent majesty according to Jerry Bridges. In other words, it's the fact that God is not like us. 
God is other than us. He's not down on our level. He is not, he is not limited by the things that limit us. He doesn't experience things the way... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I'm not 14 again. <clears throat> My voice cracking. My boys have brought a cold home to their mama, and their mama has given it to me. <laughs> and so... I apologize for that. I promise it's not COVID. At least I don't think it is. She's had three negative COVID tests. So, I mean, you give, give whatever, that, whatever that's worth. <clears throat> but if you wouldn't mind, uh, utter a prayer for me this morning as I continue preaching. This is my third time preaching, and I, I hope my voice makes it through the rest of the service. God is, thankfully, not like us. <clears throat> His voice doesn't break and crack with colds and with illnesses and difficulties. Folks, he is different than us. He is other than us. He is greater than us. He is more majestic. He is beyond us. And the text here reminds us that he is holier than we even imagine. I mean, as true as it is what we sang this morning, that God is holy. As true as it is that what we declare that God is holy. As true as it is that the angels say that God is holy. Our perception of the greatness and grandness and glory of God falls well short of the reality of who God is. And the text gives us this indication that what we're to see is that God is far above and beyond what we could possibly imagine in his holy splendor. The images there bear that out. When Isaiah came into the presence of God in that vision, it says he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, there's no description for God in the text. There are other places in the Old and New Testament where, say, Daniel got to see a vision of God in his glory, or, or, or John got to see a vision of Jesus in his glory in the book of Revelation. But God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says in John 4. So when Isaiah came into the presence of God, he doesn't describe God, but he does describe the scene around the throne of God. And that scene is designed to declare the holiness of God. Notice what are some of the things that take place in this scene. He was sitting on a throne. The Lord sits on a throne. Now, we in American, in our American political system are not too familiar with thrones. We have presidents who are elected. Uh, but God is a monarch. And it would be true to say he is the monarch. There is no one else besides him. And the throne there depicts his authority and his rule. Folks, he topples kingdoms and he topples nations and he is majestic and sovereign over all of those things. And our Lord, our holy God, whom we worship, is sitting on a throne. It represents to us that he is in charge and he is holy and he is worthy of our worship and praise. The throne is not just any throne. It's not just a throne that you and I could walk up to. It's a throne that is high and lifted up, the text tells us. Compare with Revelation chapter 4, which we'll look at in the coming weeks in this sermon series. But his throne is high and lifted up. In other words, it's reflective of the fact that we cannot just walk up to God. You and I do not have the privilege to just take our sinful selves and step into the presence of God of our own accord. God is other than us. He is raised up. He is different. He is majestic. And our worship is worthy, or He is worthy of our worship because He is separate and other and above us. Notice the train of His robe. It filled the entire house, the temple where He was. What a majestic robe. In other words, even in that presence as Isaiah walked in, there was no part of that room where he was that wasn't touched and filled with the presence of the Lord. 
Indeed, the testimony, which we won't really talk about in the text, the whole earth is filled with his glory, is an affirmation that because God is grand and other and great, his glory and his holiness is spread throughout all of creation, declaring his greatness and his majesty. And Isaiah experienced that by seeing the train of his robe that filled the entirety of the temple. It also tells us that there were seraphim who were there in God's presence. And these are the angelic creatures that are responsible for declaring the holiness of God. Revelation 4, the text we read earlier, they're described as saying day in and day out, night and day without end, declaring the holiness of God. And these are perfect beings. These are perfect angelic creatures. They're not, they're not like us, right? I mean, we are created in God's image, but we have the opportunity to choose to sin or choose to follow God. These beings are created perfect, and yet in the presence of God, these perfect angelic messengers are covering their face with two wings and their feet with two wings in a note of abject humility and surrender before the God who is present, before the God who is in that temple. There's a picture of humility there, even by the angels. And they say over and over again, holy, holy, holy. He is other. He is separate. He is righteous. He is pure. He is full of glorious love. And they declare that over and over again. And then when God finally speaks in the text, when he speaks, everything shakes. The entire room shakes with the quake of his voice and the glory of his grandeur. In this text, God's holiness is emphasized, it's declared, and it is pictured over and over again. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. As wonderful as it is that you and I get to read this and see this, God is holier than we could ever imagine him to be. You might say, Pastor, if I could really experience what Isaiah experienced, I might believe that God is so holy. I might believe that he's so grand. Wouldn't it be great to have this experience? Wouldn't it be great for y'all to go home today? God to call you up into heaven in some kind of heavenly vision. Let me just remind you of something. One of the worship values that we have at Wilkesboro Baptist Church is that worship is scriptural. And, And let me say this. It is no less true that God is who he is declared to be in Isaiah chapter 6 as it was when Isaiah experienced this event 2,700 years ago. You and I may never have the privilege this side of eternity to step into the visionary presence of God like Isaiah did, but we can read the pages of Scripture, which is God's testimony to us, and I want to assure you that what the Bible says about who God is in this text is who God is. Regardless of whether you and I experience it as Isaiah did, God is supremely holy. And our problem is that we don't think of God rightly enough. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever arisen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts um, of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact, watch this, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he, it, what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. 
Tozer acknowledges that, folks, it is, might be important what you say or do, how you act, how you behave, and we'll see that in just a moment. But the most important thing about you or me will always and ever be what we think about God. And because God is so much more holy than we can ever imagine, we need to be driven to the truths of Scripture that help us see God accurately and see God gloriously. Let me give an aside. No other service got this aside, but I'm going to give this aside today. Okay? One of the reasons why Dr. Mike and Dustin and I have really worked on the types of songs and the, the songs that we sing regularly is because we only have so much time in a given year. I know for you, sitting in it, well, maybe not for you. For my son, sitting in an hour worship service is a long time. And some of you children may think it's a long time to sit in an hour worship service. But we have a chance to think about the fact that, yeah, we have an hour today to worship the Lord. We only have 52 of those in a year. There's only so much time in a given year that we're going to sing together and almost only so much time in a year that we're going to open God's Word together and see what God says to us from the pages of Scripture and seeing what is true about God. And so the song choices must teach us something about God and they must point to God and the sermons and the text must point to God because folks, the most important thing is not how you feel about worship or, or what we think is going on or even what we think and do. The most important thing is what we think about God. We need to see God for who He is. There's nothing more important than that. Here's worship principle number two and here's why. Because we are more sinful than we know. I have no doubt that everyone in this room realizes that you are sinful. There are things you've said that are wrong. There are lies that you have told. There is a behavior that, that you've given into that, that is not right. You've not done what you should do. And you have done what you shouldn't do. And we're sinful. But the text here seems to articulate a position that we are more sinful than even we realize. Isaiah's comment. His statement to God. In seeing God in His holy grandeur. Woe is me. For I am lost. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Among a people of unclean lips. It's a, a fascinating and staggering observation. I think this text is paradigmatic on at least two fronts. One, it's a paradigm of the gospel. See God in His holiness. Isaiah responds in confession. He experiences atonement and then is sent on a mission. And I, I think maybe his statement, I am lost, might be spiritually accurate. I don't know about Isaiah's conversion experience prior to this event. But at the very least, Isaiah recognizes his need for God to do what only God can do in his heart and life. And so he confesses, woe is me. So there's a picture of the gospel that is present in the text. There's also a picture, it's paradigmatic, of our worship. Worship begins with God and it moves to confession and recognition of our need for Him. And then there's a picture of us being atoned for, the gospel being applied to our lives, and then being sent out on mission. So it's paradigmatic on those fronts. But I want you to watch what was Isaiah's specific confession. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. Now, I think there's a parody going on here. I'll explain that in a moment. But Isaiah, the prophet, his 
value, his, his responsibility in God's expectation of him was his speaking. I mean, this is the same Isaiah who would write and prophesy in chapter 9 about the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the Jesus who was going to come, Emmanuel who's going to be in the world with us. The same Isaiah who would prophesy in chapter 40 about God being the one who felled nations and who created the world and who in his glorious strength when we wait on him, he gives us strength to walk and run and rise up with wings like eagles. The same Isaiah who would prophesy in chapter 41 that we don't have to be afraid, Isaiah 41.10, because God is righteous and he holds us in his righteous right hand. We don't have to be afraid. The same Isaiah who would prophesy in chapter 53 about the suffering servant, the one who would take our sins, the one who would die on our behalf. The same Isaiah who the many scholars think of Isaiah as the fifth gospel because over and over again in, 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 uh, in the book of Isaiah, the gospel is reiterated and it's pointed to and it's reflected in its testimonies. The Isaiah whose job it was to proclaim the glories and greatness of God testified that he was sinful with what he said. Folks, even at our best, we are still sinful. Even at the things you are most gifted to do. Even at the things God has empowered you to do for his glory and his greatness. We are still sinful. It's the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we possibly could be in every area. It just simply means that we are sinful through and through. There's not a part of us that is not touched by our human sinful condition. Folks, the reality is we are more sinful than we know. Just to make a confession, even this morning, as I've been preaching through this text and thinking through it, I've reflected on some things that are going on in my life and recognized that even in some good things that I'm trying to do and we're trying to do, I have been sinful in some of the ways I've handled some things. And, and as I was standing here singing with y'all, I was echoing some of Isaiah's confessions in, in this text. Folks, we are more sinful than we know that we are. And we need to see God in His holiness and His greatness in order to, to discover our sinfulness so that we can experience forgiveness. That leads us to our third worship principle. Atonement is more costly than we admit. Look at the picture of this atonement. It's God initiated. The angel brought a coal and touched Isaiah's lips with a burning coal from the altar. And it's also contextually far different than maybe we might think it is. What, what's the deal with this particular imagery? I, I really believe there's a, a sense of heavenly mockery or heavenly parody at some things that had gone on in the ancient world with relation to their idolatrous practices. In the ancient world, there was an, a, a, a ritual or a rite that when an idol was set forward to be consecrated, to be worshipped, so an idol was built, it was made, it was made out of wood or stone or gold or silver or some other element. It was made by a person, and when it was set forward at a place of worship, a high place or a temple or a place to be praised, there was a ritual that would take place where the persons who made the idol would take a cloth with some water and wash the idol's mouth. It's called washing of the mouth. And that act was an invitation to the deity to incarnate the idol. 
giving the idol an opportunity to speak as deity in the, in the situation and circumstance and what, what was taking place. And I really think what's taking place in this text is God is, God helped Isaiah to recognize his own sinfulness in order to parody that, that imagery, that, that idolatrous rite that was so prevalent in Israel at the time. And so here's the irony. In the washing of the mouth ritual, a human built an idol, washed its mouth, and invited a deity to speak through it. In the picture here in Isaiah chapter 6, God invites a person into his presence, touches a coal to his mouth, cleansing his mouth, inviting that person, that prophet, to speak his words to the nations and his word to his nation. It's a beautiful picture of God turning an idolatrous rite on its head and using it to declare a spiritual truth, not only to Isaiah, but to all the readers and all who would hear afterward. And that that act of atonement is a beautiful picture of exactly what God did to bring about salvation to us. I want you to notice Isaiah never asked for forgiveness. He just simply acknowledged his guilt. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And God initiated the act of cleansing. An angel picked up a tong, and with the tong picked up a coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips with that coal that was at the altar. If you want to get a picture of what that altar might have been like, go back to last week's message in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9, where there's that heavenly imagery, right? Of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the altars in the Old Testament, they pictured what was reality in heaven, the heavenly altars. So this altar was in heaven. This coal was in heaven. And I don't want to get too philosophical for, for, for too many minutes, but just remember that in our course of human history, Isaiah lived 700 years before the time of Christ. Christ had not died on the cross yet. And today, it's been 2,000 years since those events took place in our human system of time. But God resides outside of time. And for God, he planned to send Jesus to the cross even before he created the world. So that, that coal in heaven is represented, basically, it represents a coal that has been cleansed by blood. In other words, it's not just the fieriness of the coal that cleansed Isaiah's lips. It's a coal that had been washed under the blood of God himself, of Jesus Christ, and giving atonement to Isaiah. In other words, the picture is a gospel picture. Atonement is more costly than you and I can ever uh, consider or than we admit. So, Folks, sometimes we want an easy way out. We want to come to God, oh God, I've sinned, I've messed up today, and would you please forgive me? And God can, but we, when we fail to remember that the means by which God forgives us is what his son did on a cruel Roman cross some 2,000 years ago, we neglect to remember that it is the blood of Jesus that offers us forgiveness. We ought not dare to come to God in some kind of trite or some kind of small way when we confess our unrighteousness before Him because it's only through the blood of His Son, Jesus, that God offers us forgiveness. Beloved, hear this. There's no way that God just looks out across humanity and says to us, I'm just going to make them all clean. God, by His own holiness, cannot do such a thing. Our sins cannot just be declared away. 
God, God can't just look at us and say, I'm going to wash them of their unrighteousness. No, there has to be an act of substitutionary sacrifice that brings about the forgiveness that we receive. So every time that I come before God in confession, every time you come before God in confession, we come on the basis of Christ's death on the cross that atones for our unrighteousness. It makes our act of confession, it makes our act of repentance, it makes our act of acknowledging our sin significantly meaningful, but far more costly than we readily admit. It is through what Jesus did on the cross that we can be forgiven. If you're here today and you have not yet experienced the forgiveness that only God can bring through the death of Jesus on a cross, I would beg of you, don't go any further this week without trusting in Jesus alone to be your Savior. He's the only one that can cleanse you. If you come into this worship service today and you become aware of your sinfulness and your need for the mercy and forgiveness of God, it can't happen through a rite and a ritual. It can only happen through the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins. I would beg of you, don't go any further than today before you trust Jesus to be your Savior. Let me give you worship principle number four. Idolatry is more prevalent than we think. A lot of times, and even, even in a previous attempt to preach this text, I think I, years and years ago, I think I preached this text along with Matthew 28, talking about our commission being changed by God, being sent out to, to the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the nations. Most of the time, or a lot of the times, we stop at verse 8, where the Lord says, Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. We stop. Because if you read through the next few verses, it's quite troubling. The message that God sent Isaiah to preach was this. Tell the people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. On its face... That message is not a message of hope. It's a message of judgment. Why would God send Isaiah a prophet to preach a message of judgment? What's going on in the text? One of the things G.K. Bill brings out in his book on biblical, biblical theology of idolatry is this particular text has corresponding texts. Psalm 106 is one of those. Other places in the Old and New Testament reflect on what, I, what took place with idolatry. And the imagery is this. An idol, a physical image that had been made to be worshipped, an idol has eyes. But because it's a piece of wood, stone, or gold, it has eyes but can't see. It has ears but can't hear. It has a mouth but it cannot actually speak. And one of the judgments that God brought upon idolaters, one of the things he said in Psalm 106, one of the things he says here, the, the actual affirmation here, is that if we choose to worship idols, if we choose to worship something that can't really see, that can't really hear, that can't really speak, then part of God's judgment upon us is going to be just like the idol. We have eyes, but we don't perceive. We have ears, but we don't really hear. We have a mouth, but we don't really speak the truth. In other words, part of the judgment is that we become like what we revere. That's G.K. Bill's point in his book. 
So what was taking place in Isaiah's day when God gave him this commission is God was sending Isaiah back to his people, back to God's people and saying, Hey, listen, you've decided for the entirety of your time in Jerusalem, you've decided to worship idols. Okay. If you want to worship idols, you can worship idols and you'll become even more blind and you'll become even more deaf, deaf and you'll become even more dumb. To be honest with you, the prophecies of Isaiah and the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament bear out that reality. We look back and think, how could someone deny the truths that Isaiah preached and taught? People of Israel heard it over and over and over again. And instead of worshiping the one true God who is glorious in holy splendor, they worshiped gold and silver and wood images. The sin and the idolatry of the Old Testament Israelites was idols, images, things that they put in place of God. You want to know something fascinating? This text is quoted in the New Testament on a number of occasions. Jesus references it at least four times in the Gospels. Uh, He was asked a question. He was asked, why do you preach in parables? And then Jesus quoted this text. But he didn't quote the section of, of this text where Isaiah experienced God and his holiness. He didn't quote what the angels said, that God is holy, holy, holy. He didn't quote Isaiah's confession of, uh, of sinfulness. And he didn't even quote the section on atonement. You know what Jesus quoted? He quoted it multiple times in the New Testament. He said, why do I preach in parables? I preach in parables because seeing they won't see and hearing they won't hear They won't perceive and they won't understand. The idolatry in the Old Testament was a true image, a physical image that the people of Israel were worshiping. The idol in the New Testament was tradition. I want you to get this. The unbelieving Israelites in Jesus' own day, they had the Old Testament law, they had the temple, they had the sacrificial system, they had the prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus had fulfilled, and on top of all of that, they had Jesus right there in front of them. I mean, God is incarnate, walking among them. He's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's helping the blind to see, he's doing all sorts of miracles, teaching with authority and power. They had all of that. And yet, when Jesus was preaching to them the truth of the gospel, they couldn't see it and they couldn't hear it. And here's why. Because they were seeking their own affirmation by abiding to their religious tradition rather than seeing the God who was standing right in front of them. There's a word for us today. Far be it from us that we should let tradition get in the way of who God is. And, and we could miss God because things don't operate exactly like we think they ought to operate in our worship services or on, in our own spiritual lives. But if the idolatry of the Old Testament was an image, an idol that was built up in the idolatry in the New Testament was some type of traditional tradi- tradition that got in the way of seeing Jesus, what's the idol in our own day, in our own life? What, what is it that we're guilty of? I'm going to be honest with you. I think idol, idolatry is far more prevalent than we ever think it is. And I think the idolatry that we struggle with today is probably not bowing down to an image of gold or silver. And it's probably not ultimately the traditions that we won't let go of like the people of Israel in Jesus' day. I think the idolatry that we struggle with the most is the idolatry of self. 
Everything in our lives does not revolve around God who is, but it revolves around us. What we think, what we feel, what we experience, what we desire, what we long for. Friedrich Nietzsche, whose philosophy drove him mad, uh, he made this statement, which is a pretty honest observation of the culture in which he lived. He said, the noble type of person feels that he determines value. He doesn't need anyone's approval. He judges that what is harmful to me is harmful in itself. He knows that he is the one who gives honor to things in the first place. He creates values. He honors everything he sees in himself. And this sort of morality is self-glorifying. Nietzsche was simply observing what we see in our culture today. Selfies. Images of ourselves all over social media. Social media that is designed to reflect our image of who we are to the world. Choices that we have in media and entertainment where we can watch whatever we want, whenever we want. We can even have our burgers our way, the way we choose. And, and that I don't, I don't mean to poke fun at catchy little phrases that, that are contemporary, but it builds in us, unfortunately, I believe, a worldview of an idolatry of self. That whenever something doesn't happen fast enough to suit us, we get frustrated and upset. Whenever someone doesn't think about us the way we think about ourselves, we get disappointed at the fact that they don't consider us when we haven't even thought about considering them. When things happen in the worship service, let me illustrate it this way. Let me quote David Wells before I do. David Wells acknowledged that this type of idolatry has not just permeated culture, but has permeated evangelical Christianity. He said, It is idolatry as pervasive and as spiritually debilitating as were many of the entanglements with pagan, religious, uh, pagan religions recounted for us in the Old Testament. That this devotion to the self seems not to be like that older devotion to a pagan god blinds the church to its own unfaithfulness. The end result, however, is no less devastating because the self is no less demanding. It is as powerful an organizing center as any god or goddess on the market. It is baptizing as faith the pride that leads us to think much about ourselves and much of ourselves. If you and I come into this one hour a week that we have, where we're the gathered congregation of believers, and all we can think about is how that song didn't please us or didn't fit our preferences, or how that part of the service could have been better if it had been done a different way, and we're, we're self-absorbed by what doesn't happen in this room to accomplish what we think it ought to accomplish. If that's what's going on when we're in the gathered congregation of believers, I can promise you that the other hundred plus hours a week that we're not in the gathered congregation, where it's not to be about us anyway, it's to be about Him, then here's what happens. We are observing a self-centered, self-absorbed idolatry that is keeping us from being right with the Holy God. Beloved, it is not about us. What we experience and what we feel might be wonderful or it might not be wonderful, but it is not about us. It's about a holy God. And I'm afraid 
In fact, I know it's true because I struggle with it in my own life just like you struggle with it in your life. I'm afraid that our selfishness and ourselves have become our idols where we will stop at nothing until we're pleased, until we're happy, until we get what we want. Folks, that's an idolatry that will keep us from God. I'm going to tell you what God promises of that kind of idolatry. He'll let us have it. He'll let us walk down the path of self-absorption and selfishness. How do I know that? Just look around at our world. Look around at our country. Uh, the idolatry of self has so permeated American, contemporary American culture. You know what God's letting us have? He's letting us have exactly what we want. The unfortunate reality of that is that blinds us to who he is. It blinds us to his glories. It blinds us to his greatness. It blinds us to his majesty. It blinds us to his holiness. Folks, as followers of Jesus, do you know what we need? Here's the application. Here's the close of the sermon. It's very, very simple. We need to see and to revere God. The solution for idolatry is not to start figuring out all those self-absorbed things that we do and try to stop doing them. The solution to idolatry is to see God as Isaiah saw God in Isaiah chapter 6. I promise you, if we see God in his holy grandeur, you can't think about yourself when you see God. Or if you think about yourself when you see God, all you're going to think is, man, I'm, so, I'm fall short. We're going to acknowledge our sinfulness and our wickedness and our depravity and our unrighteousness. How do we see God? We see God through the pages of Scripture. Folks, this has got to be what drives our behavior and our lives and our understanding. We also see God when we ask Him. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do at the invitation. I'm going to ask you in a time of prayer to ask God to let you see him in his glory and his holiness. God in, is inviting us to see him in his glory. That's what we need. That's what will burn out the idolatry from our lives. That's what will send us out to people who desperately need the gospel. May that be true of you and me. Stand with me if you will. Father, I come to you in this moment and I come to you in a heart of humble confession. I wish I could say that I was as right before you as I ought to be. The reality is probably none of us are. For we fall short in our humanity of grasping the absolute glory and wonder of your holiness. Forgive us for that. Here's our humble request this day. Help us to see you in all of your holy splendor. If there's a person in the room today that is lost and does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, God, show them your holy splendor and bring them to confession and repentance. If there's a Christian in this room who is abiding idolatry, Maybe the idolatry of self in his or her life. Lord God, show them your holy splendor, your holy majesty. And burn away that unrighteousness and that idolatry in our hearts and lives. Lord, if there are any idolatries present in Wilkesboro Baptist Church, 
things that we're holding on to or not letting go of or things that we're doing that are wrong and that are they're about us. Father, help us to see your holy splendor and burn away the sinfulness and the idolatries in our heart that when we gather, it may only and always be about you. And when we scatter, it may only and always be about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.